and welcome to the Eye on the Tigers podcast. I'm Dave Matter, host dispatch stltoday.com, the zoo beat writer. And we are joined today by Ben Fredrickson, sports columnist for the Post Dispatch and stltoday.com. Word on the street, Ben, is that you are in Los Angeles covering a certain baseball team that's going to be playing uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers in a in a in a winner go home type game. That that's what I hear. Is that is that true? I can confirm that rumor, Dave. I will not uh, immediately shoot it down out of hand. I'm here. Um, the, we are recording this a uh, little behind the scenes. We're recording this on a Wednesday. Of course, the Cardinals play the Dodgers tonight. So we'll see how that plays out. And that will determine if I'm headed back home or, or headed to San Francisco. But uh, on Saturday, I was with you for a That's game right. that we watched in Columbia. And it was probably uh, – Halfway through the second quarter, when we both kind of looked at each other and said, yeah, this is probably a game where someone's going to get fired. <laughs> I mean, it just felt like that. Um, there are certain games where you know something bad's going to happen. Um, and and sure enough, it, it has. It, we weren't sure what it was going to be, but Missouri has made some moves. And you've been in Columbia since the, since the loss. I went back to St. Louis and got ready to fly to California. It sure seems like there's been a circling of the wagons there by Eli Drinkwitz. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, I don't know if we're going to talk a whole lot of North Texas. They're, they're the opponent for homecoming this week. Uh, we will talk about Texas, though. Later on in the podcast, we're going to talk to uh, old friend Bob Ballou. He's the uh, sports director at CBS Austin, former KOMU sports anchor here in Columbia. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about SEC expansion. Um, Texas and Oklahoma play this weekend in the Red River shootout, Red River rivalry, whatever we're supposed to call it these days. So I thought it'd be a good time to talk a little bit about what's going on in Austin. What's the feel like about these two schools that are going to be joining the SEC at some point. And uh, we get into a whole bunch of stuff. Look, look, go down memory lane a little bit in back in the big 12 days, but before we get to, to Bob and, and the Longhorns, man, what a disaster we saw on Saturday. Uh, and it wasn't, wasn't just the defense this time. It was the offense too, but defense is where, Missouri made some changes, uh, obviously, over the weekend. Jethro Franklin is out after only five games as Missouri's defensive line coach. Um, what does Steve Wilkes, defensive coordinator, can we call him embattled uh, defensive coordinator? That seems like the phrase you use at this point when things are going bad. What does he think about it? I don't know. We don't know. He didn't talk to the media this week. I don't think that was necessarily his choice. Uh, what do the defensive players think about it? I don't know. We don't know that one either. They weren't, they weren't made available this week, so – Eli Drinkwitz is kind of going into bunker mode a little bit. I mean, he did his weekly uh, media session. Uh, but other than that, we got to talk to Case Cook, right guard, who um, was clearly instructed not to say anything interesting, or at least that's he did that on his own. And, and we talked to Missouri's punter, Grant McKinnis, who offered a whole lot of nothing on, on uh, not, not his fault, but he's not really the relevant voice here. So circling the wagons is one good way of putting it. Um, you know, Eli has been, I think, really media savvy in his year and a half at Missouri. But the choice this week is to uh, not have a whole lot of access. And, you know, that's frustrating for guys like us. But we will uh, find ways to write and talk about this team like we do every week. Never a great sign when your punter is showing up for media days. Um, and that's it telling that that happens after a game where Tennessee did not have to punt one time right. for the first for the first time in like 12 years um Tennessee won a full game without uh without a single punt so 
there's all kinds of numbers I'm sure we're going to get into. I do want to rewind a little bit and just say that I'm like fanboying out that you got to, to hang out with Bob Ballou for the podcast. I know, uh, I know you guys are pals, but so growing up in Sedalia, Missouri, man, Bob Ballou was like, he was like, I'm trying to think like he was like Stuart Scott of, 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 of mid Missouri, man. He was the man. So uh, that is cool. You have to tell him I, I said, hello. Um, I, I think I once saw him at the Columbia mall when I was like school clothes shopping because we had to like drive to Columbia to get school clothes. And I was like, Oh my God, mom, it's Bob Baloo. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he was probably buying like a sweet mock turtleneck or something. <laughs> yeah, man. That's a nice pleated khakis for the, and then the first the time broadcast. I met Chris, you know, the, the original goat, Chris Trevino. Um, when I first met Chris, I like, you, I thought I met like, uh, like Denzel Washington or like, you know, like, like Robert De Niro. I was like, Oh my God. I was like awestruck. And of course, Chris is like the nicest guy ever. So those are stories from watching KOMU growing up in Sedalia for no one who cares. My dad and mom, if they're listening, um, the defense, man, I hate to be, I feel like it's like the Mizzou. I am the, I am the defense podcast. Yeah. That's all we talk about, but you know, and in the offense didn't play well. I thought it was the kind of the, the dullest we've seen Connor Basilak play in a long time, maybe ever. Um, I know the offensive line didn't play very well either. And it's just such a hard thing when you're, trying to immediately climb out of such a hole that the defense put you in. Maybe it's a different game if they score on the first possession, but after that they were just underwater because the defense was Swiss cheese. But right. I mean, really talking about anything other than this defense right now is kind of like I, I, I told someone it's like, you know, it's like trying to wonder about a house renovation when the kitchen's on fire. I mean, like there's just no point. I mean, you're not going to be de- redoing the wallpaper when the, there's smoke billowing out of your uh, of your front door, um, you have to put out the fire, and that's exactly what Eli Drinkwitz has to do with this defense. And you know, I asked about Wilk's job after the game, and it wasn't it wasn't trying to be sensational, but with the numbers that that they're allowing, you know, they're one game away from halfway mark of the season, and this is one of the worst defenses in in FBS football. Um, you know, their the running defense, their rushing defense is just it's the it's probably the worst. Um, I think it's the worst in yards allowed per game. Um, it's it's among the worst in in big runs allowed. It, they don't tackle well. Um, they don't get off linebackers. Don't get off blocks well. The defensive line is not coming up with much push, and, and they're not occupying linemen to keep them off of linebackers. Um, they look physically overmatched in a lot of phases. And the other thing we saw this Saturday, and that's what made you know something was going to have to change. There were some questions about effort, and yeah. I know Eli came out swinging um, in the post game about when that topic was brought up, and he said he felt like they fought the whole game after opening his comments by kind of apologizing for what wasn't a, a great effort at times. So those were kind of conflicting things, but we saw probably five, ten plays from the press box where guys gave up on plays, where they they stopped sprinting after a guy who was running down the field. Maybe they had a chance to catch or strip the ball from or at least try to make a competitive play. We saw some a little bit of give up out there. When you see that as a coach, you've got to you've got to snip you got to cut it out now. I mean, you cannot let that linger. And and I guess we'll see if if Al Davis on the D line can get some results that Jethro Franklin was not getting. I, I had a lot of people say, "Hey, is that just eyewash? Is that just trying to buy time?" If if, if he doesn't think the Wilkes hire is right, and I don't think so. I mean, I, I think the the one thing is that defensive line was supposed to be the strength of this defense. Right. I mean, some people said it was the strength of the team. And, and we didn't, what reason do we have not to believe it? They had 
guys coming back. They had depth. Um, so for them to just be such a non-factor, I, I do want to see if if a different voice, maybe a different style of coaching there can get better results. I don't know if we're going to get a good read against North Texas, but hell, um, if that defense that played Saturday against Tennessee shows up against North Texas, then North Texas will probably win the game. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, let's let's address the biggest complaint we're hearing from fans, and, and fans are fans. They're going to find things to complain about, but why why Jethro Franklin and not Steve Wilkes getting the ax here. And I, I think, money. <laughs> I think there's, there's two big factors here. One is the money. And we know this is an athletics department that has been uh, underwater financially for five years now uh, operating at a deficit. They made Steve Wilkes the highest paid assistant coach in school history in any sport. You know, he's, he's averaging over a million dollars a year over his two year deal a lot of money it's a lot of money for an athletic department that is not bringing in the revenue that it needs to uh, especially on game days right now Missouri's averaging about 45,000 a game that's 15,000 short of capacity that's lost money at the, at the turnstiles three games now Saturday's game was the smallest home crowd for an SEC game since Mizzou joined the league I'm not counting last year when capacity was reduced um, smallest crowd of the season and that's counting all the Tennessee fans that were there, smallest SEC home crowd. So there are there are financial reasons behind everything Missouri does and doesn't do, and I think this one has to be part of that. I, I don't think it's a good look if Eli Drinkwitz would go to his brand-new athletics director, Desiree Reed-Francois, and say, hey, um, I, I, we need a million bucks to buy out this guy. It's just not working. And I think if, if he would bring that to her – if you would bring that to me as the AD, my response would be, okay, well, how do I tell all these other teams on campus, hey, um, Eli made a big mistake here and hired the wrong guy. Uh, I'm going to have to take money out of your guys' budgets to make up for this mistake. I mean, there's no other coach on campus other than Conzo Martin who makes a million dollars a year. So there is a financial factor to this too. It's also a logistical one. Five games into the season, you don't just wave the, the white flag and give up. Who – We'll coordinate the defense. Um, but yes, Eli has a couple of assistants on staff, but he passed them over this offseason and didn't give them the promotion to be the coordinator. DJ Smith and Charlie Harbison. He's not going to promote Jethro Franklin, obviously. Um, Aaron Fletcher's brand new to the staff. I don't think he's going to promote him. And it's if this were Barry Odom, sure, Barry could say, I'll, I'll just I'll just handle the job the rest of the year. I'm a defensive coach. Well, Eli's not. He's not even, he said he's not even going to really help and, and change his role in practice because he's in charge of the offense. So you got to have somebody run this thing. And also too, if five games in, you're admitting I made a big mistake here. Well, then the spotlight falls on your shoulders and the pressure's on you saying, okay, well then you're admitting now you made a huge mistake this off season. Um, you know, now you're the one that has to be held accountable. So I don't think it made sense to fire the, the coordinator five games in. I do think it made sense to make a change with the defensive line, like you mentioned. I mean, this is such a uh, a group that has underachieved a lot, and you can't just fire the players. Um, you, you know, you can play backups. We saw what happened when Missouri played backup defensive guys against SEMO in the second half. It was pure carnage. So I don't think just you can't just say, okay, we'll just keep Jethro and we'll we'll play a bunch of freshmen. I, that's not going to solve anything. So I think this is the this is the plan that worked or, or that, that made the most sense. We'll see if it works. And chances are 
they'll look better against North Texas. And you can say for a week, at least, Hey, this was the right move. If it backfires, well, I don't know if it can backfire. I don't know if it can get worse. Um, but if it doesn't work, then, you know, this will just be the prevailing storyline the rest of the season. Yeah. I mean, I think the Wilkes conversation very much has to continue. I, yeah, I think absolutely. Eli hadn't seen enough where he knew without a doubt that he had, he's made this mistake with this hire. And I, I'm kind of of the school where, you know, it's, you don't let, don't let one mistake turn into two. Right. You see it all the time in baseball, right? A guy bobbles a ball, collects himself. He picks it up. He has time to get the out, but then he, he hits the, the, the peanut salesman in the head with the ball and the throw in the fourth throw because he rushed the throw. Like, don't let one mistake turn into two. So you see that with coaches sometimes where they, where they make a, a wrong hire and then their, their inability or their stubbornness to not say it was the wrong hire makes them hold on to it too long. Um, and, and I think what we saw with Eli is he's not afraid to make a change. Um, and, and he did try to start at a lower level here for all the reasons we just mentioned. But one of the other reasons might be he still thinks Wilkes, Wilkes can do this. Absolutely. Uh, and maybe he really pinpointed it down to the D-line and said, okay, I think this is where the disconnect is. And I'm sure he had some conversations with players or saw some things on film that, uh, that maybe were not there, um, you know, for this unit. And, and there's really – if they can find a way to engage this defensive line to get a better performance out of it, a lot of the holes that we're seeing will go away. The linebackers will look better and, and teams will have to pass more and, and maybe they get some of those turnovers that have really that, that kind of helped them through some of the first few games. The defensive line really is the key here. So making a change there could, could potentially take some heat off Wilkes. You know, the, the thing we saw Saturday, that three man front, I, I think that was a little concerning. Um, you know, just on how it got attacked and exploited. Of course, when they went back to the four man, it did too. So you're seeing Wilkes trying some things. He's already made some changes. He's gone from the sideline up to the booth. So you can view those one of two ways. Either he's being creative, trying to crumble changes that might help. And I think that's better than doing the same thing over again and having it not work. Right. Um, you would just wish those changes would work. And if the changes are going to continue to come as they should and they don't work, then at the end of the season, then he, he might have to go to Desiree Reed, Francois, and say, look, this isn't going to work. I, I need to go get somebody better. And, uh, you know, that is going to be a ding on Eli. You know, Eli can't say, hey, this guy, I inherited him. No, he he pushed Ryan Walters out or whatever happened there happened. And he went and got Steve Wilkes, and this was his hire. So, you know, he wears that, you know, whether it whether it works or doesn't. And if it ends up working out, then he's going to look smart for the patience that he's shown here. But I do think he he showed that he's willing to step in and cut something off if he feels like it's going down a bad road. Um, I don't think he thinks Wilkes is there yet, um, and but that could change, you know, depending on how these next couple of games play out. Um, you know, the, the the stuff about kind of the not letting him, whatever, whether he was not told to talk or not letting him talk, whatever, I think that's kind of, I get probably how he's viewing it. Hey, we're, we're going to stop talking and be about action, but it does look a little, um, looks a little, sensitive I don't know how else to put it I mean yeah. look Eli I don't think you and I don't think he is I think he gets it I think he knows that there's a honeymoon period for head coaches and now it's kind of his is over and it's about what he does in the field I think he understands that he's in a tough spot here because he went out this offseason challenging people to come to games and really right. you know challenging their fanhood and then to have this start is disappointing and people are going to throw that right back in their face if they choose to not everybody will but some will I'm sure he's hearing some of that, but to not send Wilkes out there to say, hey, this is what's going on. This is why we tried this defensive look. This is why it didn't work. 
this is why I, I didn't think, you know, I'm sure he had some say in the move to, to send out Jethro Franklin. It would be good to hear his thoughts on that. And he's, he's a big guy. He's done this at the NFL level. He's been fired before he's gone through adversity as a coach. He, he can talk about these things. And in, in some ways it might've brought some calm to the situation. I think not having him talk this week maybe adds a little more fuel to the fire that something that something is is continuing on here, that this is a big, this, that, that Wilkes is just as much kind of on the hot seat here as, as Franklin would be. Maybe it'll just take a little bit longer. Now, maybe that's a misread, but when he doesn't come out and, and put kind of a, a fire extinguisher on things, it does make you wonder. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that coaches will never understand is when they shut down access, they don't shut down us from doing our job. If anything, the editors don't say, Hey, don't write this week. Right. We have more air to fill. We have more space to fill. So instead we kind of have to rely on our own analysis and some of that may be flawed because we don't, we're not talking to the people that we usually talk to. So if anything, it leads to maybe more speculation, more inherent negativity that they're trying to avoid. And coaches will never, never understand that. And I, I heard a lot from fans complaining that that Steve Wilkes was ducking the media and, uh, you know, you know, didn't have the guts to come out and talk. Let, let's get that over with. I mean, this is a guy who in the NFL, he talked to the media every single day as a head coach in Arizona. He's worked in big markets. You know, you, you, you think he ducked the media in Cleveland when he was the defensive coordinator there? I mean, you know, it, it, he's, he has faced the music before. He has no problem answering questions from about four adults and 20 students. <laughs> like that's is, is not that hard. Yeah, I think he should uh, have told Drinkwitz he wanted to. I mean, I, I think yeah. he should have expressed expressed to Drinkwitz the why he why he needed to. Right, um, right. But and, you know, it's funny, the fans get mad when we asked when we, we, when we point out that we don't get a chance to talk to somebody that they that they're that they're happy with. And then we're whining media, but when uh, when it's somebody they want to hear from and we say we don't get to talk to them, then they're on our side. It's funny right. how that works. Right. And you know, Nick Saban doesn't let his assistants talk to the media during the season, but that's not that's not the case here. When when you're changing midstream, um, you know, it I, I don't think it's a great look. I just don't. And that's I, I've always respected, you know, Gary Pinkle for a lot of reasons, but for one, his media policies didn't change from August to January. It was the same every week. And maybe you didn't get everybody you wanted, but if you're going to put your, your coaches in that uh, in the crosshairs there and let them answer the questions, you did it every week. And you didn't all of a sudden, just because there's a little adversity say, okay, well not this week. You know, we right. don't want, we don't want, you know, the, the man eater, you know, asking our $1 million defensive coordinator a question that might hurt his feelings or, or something like that. So I don't like it. I, I just think it's, I, I thought of our media savvy head coach, it was a, it was a misstep. Um, agree. So. Agree. I, I have a question and, and I, I'm, you know, the backstory here and, and tell me if this is just like, just like totally off base, but the more I watch this team, I feel like there are a lot of guys on this defense who are like physically undermatched. Like yeah. it's one thing, like you know, it's it's one thing to maybe you don't see a lot of blown coverages, you don't see a lot of schemes that are that are bad. I mean, it, it would be easy to much easier to pile on Wilkes if you saw a ton of just blown plays you know, in terms of like where they never had a chance. Right. But instead, and and this is as much on Wilkes as anything because this is his job too. Missed tackles, um, guys not being able to get off blocks. I mean, the linebackers, they it's like they got Velcro on the front of their. You, in front of their jerseys sometimes right I mean, they just can't get off blocks they can't sustain they get you've got defensive linemen getting blown off the ball 
is it's some of this like a strength and conditioning issue is some of this up they're physically not strong as strong as some of these players they're they're going up against and, and what's the status of that i mean now that's not going to change over the course of the season you're not gonna be like okay right. guys uh go in and do a bunch of bench presses and you'll be able to get up i mean that's right. like a that's a long-term question but eli drinkwitz has got a long-term contract does he need to kind of look at some of the physicality um you know underperformance of this team in fact that into what's going on in the off seasons and, and in, in strength in strength and conditioning programs i i definitely think it's something worth exploring and worth asking about who knows we'll ever get an honest answer about it but their d tackles are really undersized now some teams prefer that they like smaller quicker more agile tackles but i'm not seeing the quickness um they're getting blown off the ball like you said i mean these these are guys that are way sub 300 um you don't really see that across the sec and other teams that are you know just stronger and and bigger and collect you know these massive specimens along the d line now sometimes it's a system thing you know it's a three four tackle is is built differently than a four three but uh man they just they don't look like they can match up at this level very well now i'll say trey john jeffcoat's a very big defensive end he fits the bill but man, he's been fairly invisible this year. Um, their linebackers, Blaze Aldridge is, he is not built like a modern SEC inside linebacker. He's just, he, you watch him play and you're like, okay, he, he was at the right level in Conference USA at, at Rice, um, you know, or, or playing at a, a group of five school. So that's not his fault. And he has made some plays, but other times you're, like you said, he's just overmatched physically. Uh, I don't think that's the case at safety. I don't think that's the case at cornerback necessarily. No, I see it more on the front. In the, it's more in the, the front. front. And that's a really good question. Is this is this about recruiting and development as much as it is X's and O's? And like you said, you can't fix that in October. Um, so you got to take the long view to some degree uh, if, if you want to fix that side of defense. If it's something they even think it needs to be fixed. Now, if you're on your second defensive coordinator in two years and maybe a third in three years – does the blueprint change for how you want these players to look and how big they are and, and the scheme they run and all that. So that's why continuity, there is, you know, some real value to having that and who calls the shots on that side of the ball, especially if it's the side of the ball that your head coach doesn't specialize in. Yeah. It, it makes me wonder too, with, with drink with look, he's, he's been, he's been on the fast track, you know, yep. he's, he's been one year and then, and then going on to the next best thing. Well, this is going to be where he is for a while. And some of those things that might get overlooked when you're one and done, um, are things like who is coaching these guys in the weight room every day, who is making sure these guys are getting bigger and stronger and faster from the time they're a freshman to a sophomore to a junior to a senior. Um, it just seems like maybe that the, they, they have not gotten as much out of some of these older players physically strength-wise that, that some of these other programs are, are getting. Um, I mean, Tennessee made them look, made that defense look like a, like a pay-for-play game. Right, and that's what it, right. that's that's what it looked. And Tennessee's not that good. No, I mean, I I, I don't I, I I know I'm not breaking news to our listeners here, but these are not the 1998 Volunteers. I mean, that team was a coin flip. Felt it had a coin flip going into this game. Um, you know, they're they're excited about the way they won, but there were not a lot of people in Knoxville just thinking that was a big an easy win for Tennessee headed into it, and, and it became a way too easy one. So I was kind of I had a lot of time to think on Saturday. Um, as we were watching that game play out, that was one of the things, one of the random thoughts that, that entered my mind there. Um, so I don't know, man, I feel like we're beating the same drum. I, I just think that, you know, 
to me, the question of the season, I mean, I, I thought this team could win eight games. Clearly I was wrong. That that's, that's not look possible now. Um, and I once again, look silly for being so optimistic for the season starts and my Pollyanna predictions. I think to me, the season story now becomes, Hey, we know Eli Drinkwitz can run offense. We know he can coach quarterbacks. We know he can call plays. This is going to be a test of him as a head coach, you know, yeah. because he has a crisis on his defense. It's the side of the ball he doesn't specialize on. He can't just say that's their problem because it's his problem. So right. I, I think to me, the story is what, what is he going to do now to, to bring a, a defense that is rotten right now to the point of being okay. I mean, the defense doesn't have to be great, but if it can be a little bit better, this team could have two more wins. Um, I don't know that they could have had three based off how the offense played yeah. in Tennessee, but they, they could have had two more and, and then they'd had one bad game um, or one loss. So I think it's about how Eli tries to intervene with the, with the, the shape of this defense. And we're going to learn about him a little bit as a head coach here. We haven't seen him face much adversity yet, much real adversity. This is some real adversity. Not much in his career. I mean, look, everywhere he's been, they've always gone to a bowl game or, or at least qualified for a bowl. Last year's team was would have qualified for a bowl and couldn't play in it. Um, and, and those other places, other than the one year at App State, when that roster was, you know, ready made for him, he wasn't calling the shots. He wasn't making the tough decisions. He was just running the offense or coaching, you know, running backs or receivers or whatever his, his role was. So there's not really a body of work to examine and say, well, this is what he did this year when this happened. Um, you didn't have that with Barry Odom either. You know, it was all kind of just based on, well, this guy's probably been planning to be a head coach for a long time and he's got knowledge and he's got a binder and he's got plans for everything, but he's never really experienced it on his own. He didn't have that question with a guy like Pinkle because he had a decade at Toledo. And before that, he had a decade as the right head man at Washington. So it's great point. This is uncharted territory for, for Eli, um, for all of the good things that he has done in his year and a half at Missouri with recruiting, with publicity, um, you know, with, with being savvy about certain things that coaches in 2021 need to be savvy about, this is real problem solving time now. And we'll see if he's up for it. And we'll see if the Cardinals are up for, uh, for facing Max Scherzer. You got a prediction on the, how the uh, Mizzou hall of famer is going to do against the Redbirds yeah. before I, I think, I think he'll be fine. Um, but man, I, I don't know how he can go against Adam Wainwright. At this point, you know, I, I think the Cardinals have to feel so grateful they have this opportunity. If you're the Dodgers, I think you're you're like going into this game, and I this is not based on any knowledge or interviews. Obviously, you're instead you're just cursing the system that you win 106 games and it all comes down to this. And you face the hottest team in baseball and the pitcher who can't lose. So I don't know. I think I I think the Cardinals should be the team that goes into this feeling more free and relaxed and. And like they have less to lose. I feel like Bob Ballou on a Thursday at Harpo's back in the day. <laughs> no comment on that. Here's your segue. There we go. <laughs> Let's talk to Bob. Okay, we are now joined by Bob Ballou, sports director at CBS Austin. This is hard to believe. I had to look this up. This is uh, year 15, Bob, for you in Austin. You were at San Antonio before that, when you, uh, right after you left us here in Columbia, um, for those of you listening from the middle of Missouri, you'll remember Bob from his years as a sports anchor at KOMU, it's the NBC affiliate 
here in Columbia. I, I have Bob down as the third greatest sports anchor in the history of Mid-Missouri. Let me check my notes. I've got Chris Gervino, number one. Um, I actually have Bob tied for second then with Rod's Big Old Fish. <laughs> so that's your, that's, you should have that on your resume. I am I tied for number two. That resume. Tied that's for amazing. Two. Yeah. Oh, that's yep. good stuff. Uh, you know, it's funny you said 15 years because uh, in my first marriage, uh, Dave was my best man in, uh, in my wedding in 2007, right as I was making the transition from San Antonio to Austin. Um, but my, I, I wanted to bring this up, Dave, because I thought this would be a good way to start this with a great trivia question for you. The last time I was in Columbia, Missouri, which is really sad to me, I'm hoping to come up this fall. What's yep. really sad to me, it's been 10 years since I've been to Columbia. And the last wow. time I was there was for Missouri just drilling Texas uh, by a final of 17 to 5. A fantastic score. I'm sure that's never happened in Missouri history. But can wow. you name the three Missouri players that scored that day? Scored any kind of points? Wow. That was the, uh, that was the Henry Josie game, wasn't it? Bozzy Whitaker was the running back for Texas, and he blew out his ACL and MCL first, tore up his knee completely, and then Henry Josie did it two quarters later. Yeah. Uh, wow. Three players that scored. Um, Marcus Murphy? Marcus Murphy did not score. Did not score. Uh, James Franklin? James Franklin scored the first touchdown of the game, the pride of Lake Dallas. There you go. That's a hint to maybe maybe the second touchdown was also a – Texas based player. Wow. I'm drawing a blank. Um, was it a defensive player? They scored a defensive touchdown. It was a running back, Dave. A running back. Earl Goldsmith. I, Kendall, I, I, Kendall Lawrence. Kendall Lawrence. Yeah. That, Kendall that, Lawrence, a 35 yard touchdown run. And then the pride of mid Missouri, Moberly's own Trey, Trey Barrow. Barrow with a field goal. Wow. Yeah, I thought I'd take you back there a little bit. That was a uh, – those were better days at times, Dave. I mean, you know, going to SEC title games and – That's right. That's right. Not a better day for Henry Josie, but he would no. have better days after that. No, but leaving for the SEC after beating Texas 17-5 right. was, a, was a really good moment for Mizzou. And then um, – It was. Now, now it looks like the, the people down here in Austin are pretty excited about the opportunity to do the same. Well, that's why we wanted to have – Bob on this is uh, we're not going to dig too deep into North Texas uh, this week on the podcast we could we could talk about the mean green all day but we're not going to I thought it would be a really good time to kind of talk about the fact that the SEC is adding a couple schools here not sure when exactly but they're adding Oklahoma and Texas who just happen to be playing this weekend in Dallas and and with Bob working in Austin covering the Longhorns we kind of want to get his perspective or the Austin perspective on what exactly is going on here. So, so Bob, how are, how are folks in Austin kind of taking this news? How are they feeling about the sec? Um, what do you think about the fit of yeah. what this is going to be like leaving, you know, big eight, not big eight, big 12 and joining this crazy league. Yeah. You know, when, when this happened back in July, I think first and foremost, as quickly as it happened, Brent Zorneman reports that, uh, you know, the Texas and Oklahoma are, are considering it. And within a week, they are, it is over and they are moving right. to the, I mean, it happened like that. And it made me at the time go, 
they're not waiting. This will happen in 2022. They're, I mean, obviously they're not going to wait the four years. That's totally right. out of the question, but um, I, I thought for sure this would happen in 2022. Well, here we sit, you know, early October. I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore because the more that this drags on, the harder it's going to be to work through all the logistics to get these two teams in by 2022. That's not yeah. to say it won't happen next year, but it, I just think it's going to be difficult to get it all done by then. And I thought in the beginning, it was just so moving so quickly that they would figure out a way to get it done. Um, it's, I would think it's looking more like 2023. And yeah. I understand it from the big 12's perspective, especially from the team's perspective of that's $20 million per school that they're losing. If, if they leave, I mean, you're going right. to, you're going to lose all that money. And so I understand why they, why the schools want to keep doing it. I don't think it's as much a punishment to Texas as mad as the big 12 and all the officials in the big 12 are at Texas and Oklahoma for doing this. Um, I, I think it's a, uh, it makes the most sense for both these schools to do this. Um, but I would say the mood in Austin is excitement. Um, you think about, and, and obviously Missouri went through this for a long time. Now, now Nebraska and Colorado were also there. And I think that helped uh, draw fans to games because of the rivalries. They had the long, long time rivalries they had with those schools, with Oklahoma, with Kansas, all of those type of things. But you look at a school like Texas and when they bring out their, their home schedule every year, and, and on that home schedule, it's Kansas and Iowa State or West Virginia and Kansas State or uh, even Baylor, uh, it doesn't draw a lot of excitement. Yeah. It doesn't draw the intensity that you want from, from college football. And I think Oklahoma probably feels the same way. And so just starting, just starting there, um, I think the excitement of thinking about the possibilities of playing, you're going to play Oklahoma and A&M and Arkansas, which will be great. I mean, those, those are all probably the three biggest rivals Texas has, but you think about playing LSU every year or Alabama every other year or Auburn or Georgia or whoever it is, the conference really exudes that type of intensity. And so I think that's where the, the people in Austin are very excited about those possibilities about like, like you and I were when, when this all happened in 2012. Yeah about yeah. the possibility of making the road trip to Oxford and going to, to Ole Miss for the first time or going to some of these places you've never been. I think that's what excites people. But knowing long-term that you get to continue to go to those places because the game day atmosphere in Alabama and Auburn and Mississippi and LSU and Georgia and all these places is just a little better than Ames or Manhattan or uh, Morgantown or wherever you're going. And I think that's what – I think more than anything for, for a fan's perspective – that's what excites people the most. Yeah. How surprised were you? I mean, I was sitting uh, <laughs> at SEC Media Days. I had just seen Brent. Um, obviously, he didn't mention anything. Um, <laughs> and then that report comes out. The first thing I thought was, well, this is a fake tweet. You know, this is, uh, this is not real. This is some fake site. Um, and then the more you hear and the more you think about it, and then we notice Ross Bjork just happens to be in Hoover, Alabama for SEC media days, which is really unusual. Um, you know, then it, it kind of crept in like, Oh, this is happening. Okay. This is a real thing. Just how, how surprised were you? Well, for some reason, and I don't know why this happens, but literally every time I go on vacation, something like this happens. <laughs> yeah. Figures. So I'm in uh, I'm in upstate New York with my wife and her family and I see the tweet and I see the ensuing tweets and everything that's going on with it. And I'm just like, I'm not coming back for six or seven days. Like, of course, this is what would happen. Um, that was my first thought when I saw it just because of my job and what I do. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, 
I guess shocking in a little little sense, but I I think if you really take a step back and think about where college football is probably headed, um, I don't know how long it would take to get to this point, but my my gut feeling on this is this ends up just being a 32 team NFL style league yeah. that has the best colleges in college football and they leave everyone else out, which I hate because to me it's the best part of college football. I I used Clemson Boston College from last year from 2020 as the example Clemson's ranked number one in the country and Boston College is up two touchdowns at the half uh, in Clemson and everyone that loves college football drops their remote and they want to go see if Boston College can hang on and they want to they want to watch the upsets they want to see that dramatic stuff and that's what you lose if that ever goes to that if it's Ohio State and Michigan and USC and Oregon and UCLA and Texas and Oklahoma and Alabama and all the SEC schools Sands Vanderbilt probably, um, except they're grandfathered in maybe. I don't know how that's going to work. But, yeah, uh, you know, I, it's, it's going to be very interesting if it goes that direction just because it's going to be a big frustration to me because college football has always been my favorite sport because of that, because of the opportunity every Saturday for something like that to happen. And to see a program come – you know, Dave, we were at, we were at Mizzou in 97 when, when Mizzou-Nebraska, the, the flea kicker game happened. Right. But that whole buildup to that, you saw the Missouri program coming under Larry Smith. You saw it making that turn. And really, if you go to something like the, the 32 team or whatever it ends up being, you just don't get that anymore. And that's yeah. what I think is the is kind of the worst part of all of this. And that's where my mind went when I saw Texas and Oklahoma are leaving. Obviously, other schools are going to follow. Is it Michigan and Ohio State leaving? Is it Clemson and Florida State trying to leave? Whoever it is to try to go to the SEC. Um that's what we're going to lose with this. And so those, it wasn't a shock. It was a shock, first of all, but it wasn't a shock in the sense that it feels like this is where some of this stuff is headed. And if there were two schools that were going to be proactive about it, it makes sense for it to be Texas and Oklahoma. Uh The, The fear and complaint that I hear from Missouri fans about this is that, uh oh, here comes Texas. They're going to try to bully their way politically through the SEC like they did in the big 12 what? And, and they, I, they did, Dave, they didn't do anything like that. I, that's what I hear. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's what I hear. Uh, something about Missouri's best days are not as good as Texas' worst days or something like the that. Lost, that's the, the quote. The, yeah, the DeLos Dodds quote that will live there in the And the best part of that is every time anything comes up where Texas plays that or whatever, it's, it's very much somebody tweets that DeLos Dodds quote to me of, um, you know, Texas worst years are, are better than Missouri's best years. And I, yes. and I, I always laugh about it because um, it's so great to be on both sides of this, knowing that, you know, my parents grew up, uh, my parents went to Texas. I grew up bleeding burnt orange and then I went to Mizzou for school. And so I changed everything to, to black and gold and to have both sides of that and see both sides of Missouri left for the sec. Right. And, and see Kansas being like, we don't want to play you because you're the ones that left. And then be on the other side of it where it's like, a&M left for the SEC and Texas is like, we don't want to play you because you went to the right. SEC, whatever. You get both perspectives in a real, real way. And I, yeah. and I thought that was always a real fun part of that. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I think for people that feel that way, though, the, the SEC is not structured the way that the Big 12 was back in whenever it was the whole time that Texas was in there. It, it's not going to really allow for a newcomer to come in and bully their way around. But, Agreed. you know, if you're Missouri, if you're Vanderbilt, if you're Mississippi State, um, you know, I don't I don't think it's right to be fearful, but 
I, I think maybe a little apprehension is okay. How, how is Texas entering this league? I mean, are they, uh, are they going to strut their way through the front door, kick it down and say, okay, we're here. This is our show now. Or do you think there's more a sense of not humility? Cause that doesn't really fit with Texas, <laughs> but is it, is it more, um, okay, we're here to be part of this and not we're here to run the show. I don't know. Um, and, yeah. and it's, it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, they have a new head coach in football and Steve Sarkeesian. They have a new head coach in basketball in uh, Chris Beard. They have a, a second year head coach in women's basketball in Vic Schaefer. And all three of them have taken on the mantra of every team we play is the biggest game for that team playing against Texas because it's right. we're, we are Texas and we are the University of Texas and blah, 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 blah. And it's interesting to hear that come back because for so many years, it hasn't really been there. Even if they said it, you didn't believe it. Yeah. Um, but all three of those coaches, it feels like are going to do really good things and, and bigger things while they're here than the, than the previous coaches have. So um, it's, it's uh, it makes me feel like, and, and, and from what Chris Del Conte is doing and trying to build here at Texas, um, it does feel like they will go in with a um, kicking the door down. We're, we're here. We're, we're ready to be the best team in the sec and we want to compete at the highest level and be that team. Um, and what's funny is Dave, and, and I, I, I do kind of laugh about this. They, they've held that perspective despite the last decade being atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, that's where I have always, you know, I mean, Texas in football has basically had the same record as Texas tech. Um, yeah. it, it's, and I know what that, I know what Sark's here to do. I know he's building something different, but, you know, they, they kept that attitude despite the fact they weren't winning. And they have, I I think it's the money issue is probably a big part of this is Texas brings in so much money that um, it does make it a little, a little difficult to get away from that. But yeah, yeah, I I do think they will go in, you know, believing that that not that they're going to just take over the league and run it the way they ran the big 12, but certainly with a, I guess use the word arrogance, the arrogance that Texas has always had and the arrogance that Texas has always felt that we are Texas. We are the university of this state and we are here to, to do big things in the sec. Yeah. That's going to be interesting because if you had to rank the programs right now, not, not the individual 2021 teams, but overall strength of the programs who has, and we're talking football here, who has the, the established coaches who have the best recruiting who have uh, not necessarily facilities, but just overall strength of the program. I mean, I don't, I don't know if Texas cracks the top five. I mean, you've got Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Dan Mullen's got that thing going pretty strong. I know they already have two losses. I think you got to put Oklahoma ahead of Texas. Sure. Absolutely. Um, LSU won the national title two years ago, but we're talking about a team with a coach on the hot seat, probably. That's the one, right? I mean, LSU, um, maybe Arkansas, the way they're coming up. I mean, they just blasted Texas. Sam Pittman's doing great work. Yeah. I mean, A&M is probably right there with Texas. I mean, Jimbo. Before the a, country last year, yeah. Right. I mean, they, they only lose one game a year ago, and they're a playoff contender. You just named seven schools, Dave. Like, yeah. So, I mean, it's a very valid point in all of yeah. this. It's, it's – uh, it's some, I mean, Texas is a volleyball school and Texas is a swimming and diving school. And that's what we, we make that joke. But like, I mean, Texas volleyball has been the best, one of the best in the country for the last 15 years. And there's not a program here that's been better than that. And yeah. 
but I, I think you're right. You just named literally six or seven schools that you could, you could not just make the argument that it's a better football program than Texas. They are. And has yeah. better facilities, but it is. And, and that's where, uh, that's where the disconnect between how you enter a league feeling the way you feel and where you actually are is there's a separation. Yeah. There's a gap there. Right. Where, where is this Texas program right now? The last time Missouri uh, had any reason to really think about Texas, Tom Herman was strutting <laughs> on the sideline in Houston and uh, poking fun at Drew Locke. And uh, obviously the Tom Herman regime did not go as planned. Now you got Steve Sarkeesian in there. I, I still think they, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen this weekend in, in, in Dallas, but I mean, I think they still could be the best team maybe overall or a second best team at worst in the big 12. And nobody thought that going into the year. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because one of the things I think you have to look at is that last year, this is what Steve Sarkeesian walked into. Uh, Texas had TCU down 33, 28. They had the ball on the one with two minutes to go yeah. and fumbled. Uh, they had Iowa state. They got it to where Cameron Dicker had a 58 or 57 or 58 yard field goal to tie the game and send it to overtime. Both of those games were at home. If they win either one of those games, they go to the big 12 championship. Tom Herman's still the coach here. Right. Even though that didn't happen, they went seven and three last year. So, so point being Steve Sarkeesian wasn't exactly walking into a rebuild. I mean, he had, yeah. there's a lot of talent in this program. There may not be a better running back in the country than B. John Robinson. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to watch him. He is as electric a player as you're going to see right now. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what he's going to, he's going to build. He's going to have dynamic players and he's going to get them the ball in open space and give them an opportunity to work. And that's, what's different about, that's what's going to be different about this Texas team is um, that's who Sark will target. Now I go back to this a lot. Sark never won more than nine games at Washington or USC. And I know that was, that's a distant past. Now that was 2009 to 2000 whatever 14 or 15 whatever it was but he still has a lot to prove and so i know he he you know went through a lot as a person and really overhauled his life yeah uh, went to went to alabama and learned a ton went to the nfl for a couple of years went back to alabama he, he got to see nick saban's blueprint but seeing all that doesn't make it work you've got to do it on your own and so there's a real interesting part there for steve sarkeesian what he has to build here um but you're right. I mean, you you look at the Texas schedule, and I and I do think Arkansas was a real, in the end, will be a real positive for him because it made him go, oh my gosh, we've got a lot of work to do, and we're not anywhere yeah. close to maybe being where I was hoping we would be. That's a good thing. I mean, I think that in the long run, that can be a really good thing. We we are going to find out a lot this weekend. I mean, this Oklahoma defense is different. The offense hasn't been playing what the way it usually does, but the defense has been really good, um, and we're going to find out who Texas is this weekend but they've still got to go to Iowa state and West Virginia in November. Um, their road games are tough. Oklahoma state's undefeated. They're coming here. So Texas still has a lot left on their plate to even consider getting to the big 12 championship game, much less taking down by the way, six time defending champion in this league, Oklahoma. Right. Um, right. So, so yeah, there, there's a lot of work to do, but I do think it's off to a good start. Um, and I think you're seeing what Steve Sarkeesian brings offensively the dynamics of no, he doesn't have Devonte Smith, but he has this guy, Xavier worthy. Who's a freshman five-star receiver that is 160 pounds and just makes people look silly. He has yeah. Bijan Robinson who will legitimately probably be in New York for the Heisman trophy ceremony if he stays healthy. So um, 
there, there's a there's a lot of good things I think to to good feelings as they as they go into this weekend against Oklahoma. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to tell us everything you know about North Texas. Go. So Kathy Ireland is a fantastic kicker, and she's got a real <laughs> opportunity to do great things this week. Um, I will say this. Uh, Seth Luttrell's done a really good job with North Texas in, in making them a better program. He had the, the quarterback, uh, Mason Fine, there for a few years yeah. that, that really did some good things. But um, I, I, I don't know enough about him this year. I just know that his name was brought up for a lot of jobs yeah. um, in, in taking a step forward. And, and he's a good coach that runs a good program. Um, Dave, Missouri should win this game. Now, I know everybody's coming off last week where it was a little bit rough, but um, I, I, I am a, I'm a big believer in Seth and what he does. I, I do think he runs a good program at North Texas. It's crazy. He was a captain of that 2000 Oklahoma national yeah. championship team. So was Josh Heupel. So Missouri gets those guys two weeks in a row. <laughs> they both kind of have a little bit of the Mike Leach air raid in their background. So uh, I, this game shouldn't be close, but with Missouri's defense, every game can be close. So you never know. I mean, seen crazier things. I don't know if we've seen crazier than that. I, well, no, I, you know what we have, we saw Bowling Green beat Gary Pinkle. We saw I've seen Middle Tennessee win a game in Columbia. Yeah. Right. That's a, that's a great point. New Mexico came in and beat, yeah. beat Gary. I mean, you, we've seen some stuff. Um, yeah. We're really depressing these uh, listeners right now. <laughs> why don't we just get into if You're going to go to Faroe this week and watch Missouri lose to North Texas. Why don't we get into the fifth down game while we're here? Yeah. Ty so Edney and, uh, I did bring up the bring flea up the kicker, game. didn't I? Yeah. You did. Yeah. It's a real downer here. Um, hey, what last thing, what do you miss most about Columbia? This homecoming week? Uh, I don't know how many people are going to be here for it when you're coming off of a worst loss in a decade, but um, I love homecoming. We like taking the kids to the parade and doing all that. What, what do you miss most? Uh, can I start with you? Yes, of course. Yeah, I miss you the most. That's, that's my obvious number one, Chris Trevino, number two. I mean, that's, <laughs> This is a, it's a pretty simple answer. Um, no, I mean, I, listen, I, I always said um, it, it was a, it looked like a wonderful place to raise a family. Obviously I was there from 18 to 25. So I, I didn't, wasn't going to have that opportunity, but um, I've always thought Columbia was a great place to raise a family. I always loved the city so much. Um, I miss Booches. I miss Shakespeare's. Uh, I do miss, and I, and I know people would say like, I miss Harpo's. I miss Willie's. Dave and I used to go, uh, we'd have, we'd finish our shows and finish, he'd finish his work and we'd go have a beer at Willie's and talk about, um, Missouri football and run into Arthur Johnson and have some <laughs> fun with him. And, you know, you think about all the memories like that, but I think more than anything, it's, it's the friendships that I made while I was there, guys like you and, and Chris and, and so many other people, um, and just the city itself. But, but man, I need a Booch's burger in a bad way, Dave. Yeah, they're pretty good. I got This is not a, this is not, I don't have an NIL deal here either. It's not like I'm mentioning these places to, cause I get to make money off it. I'm just, I'm not sure you. they do NIL deals. They're so <laughs> old school. They would pay in cash though. That's for sure. Yeah. No sniveling. No sniveling. That's right. All right. Well, Bob, Hey, we appreciate your time. You need to make it back to Columbia soon enough. Uh, it's been too long, but, uh, Hopefully, you know, you'll be here on some regular visits with the Longhorns. Who knows when, when they're going to be on the schedule, when they're going to be in Columbia. Hopefully soon. And, I, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say I missed black and gold, too. I apologize. There you I go. Can't, I mean, obviously can't say that. But, yeah, I, I really do hope that happens because I, I love uh, – I just love getting to come back up there and, 
I, I think I love, you know, when this whole move to the SEC happened, I was really frustrated because I was like, man, I don't get to watch Missouri and all my friends come down to Austin anymore and, and visit. And yeah. whether it's not just football, basketball, baseball, like everybody would come down here. Um, so that'll be nice if, if, uh, if it does end up happening, get to do that again. They've got to figure out a way that, that Missouri and A&M and Oklahoma and Texas are playing each other every year. I mean, it, it, the way that this conference is set up right now with Missouri playing Florida and South Carolina every season. And it's just, it doesn't make geographical sense. It really, you know, the, the non-revenue sports are the ones at Missouri that really have the challenge because they've got, they spend all day getting to Columbia, South Carolina or all day getting to Gainesville. And, you know, if you've got some schools, I know Steve Beezer, the baseball coach, he's got bigger fish to fry right now, but he likes the idea of, Hey, Oklahoma's not so far. I mean, even, even Austin's not that far uh, that that'll make life easier for those programs. And it just makes sense. I mean, Missouri, I, I get asked every week for the last 10 years, who's Missouri's rival in the sec. And they don't have one. I, I mean, it's supposed to be Arkansas. It's still Kansas. Like they don't play, but it still is. Uh, they just don't have one. So maybe, you know, it could be no, no one will get Missouri fans more excited or riled up than playing Oklahoma and Texas. I mean, just Texas right. by nature, Texas will be everyone's rival in the sec probably. Um, but, but that just needs to happen. You can't, you can't add these schools and then, have Missouri play them once every seven years or however it works right now. And, and I think it's, it's so hard on the kids too. you think about like, and this goes for Texas too. Texas kids going to Morgantown, West Virginia on a Tuesday night. Yeah. Playing a game and then trying to come back. It's, it's all a lot on the kids. And I, I know it's so much of it's for money and money purposes and what they're trying to do, but I, it's just, it's a lot to ask. And when Texas was talking about going to the PAC 12, I'm thinking Pullman, Washington and, <laughs> you know, Corvallis, Oregon on a Wednesday night. Like it's just, that's a lot to ask for, for a lot of those kids in those non-revenue sports. So I, I think you're right. I think it does need to be more geographical, but you know, the powers that be will make those decisions. I think based more on what their history is of who they want to be together and who they want to see together and that kind of stuff. And, right. um, and then we'll kind of go from there. Who knows? Yeah. Well, hopefully it makes sense. It probably won't because it never, <laughs> never does. No, it doesn't. <laughs> All right, Bob. Thanks a lot. Uh, for our, our listeners, um, if you have not subscribed yet to the Ion Tigers podcast, make sure that you do. You can subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, leave us a message. Leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email. Shoot Ben Fredrickson an email. If you have any tips or comments or questions about the podcast, we'd love your feedback. Um, that is all for this week. We, uh, we will join you again next week. We'll look ahead to whoever Missouri plays after North Texas. I believe it's Texas A&M. So who knows who we'll have as a exciting guest. Maybe we'll get Brent Zwerneman and see what, uh, what exciting breaking news he has for us uh, following this week. But otherwise, we'll see you next time.